This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Where'd you read them? This one needs a brand new read them. Weed and the key. Weed and the key them to life. Let's beat them. Weed them smartphones. Don't beat them. Mihi nomen est Stella at hoc est Backhold Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 179 for September MMXIX. Backhold the Oracle is brought to you by. But you don't understand. There was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course, Millhouse is in game. Yes, and Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that. Who is she calling? Nelson. You know why? Because they are endgame. It's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show has been going on for like so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's like it's been 30 years. Yeah, that's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Batgirl to Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm. Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were kids, you didn't think it would go very far? 
What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh, that episode of year, but that will come first. Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a girl! Yeah, and girls have cooties. Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it. By doing what? Mansplaining? And casplaining. Ugh. Well, anyway, 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December, and of course the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call-in show for listeners will be scheduled in December, and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully. Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you. You're, no. Fly on with Backroll the Oracle in 2020. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, I'm here on my own this time, which of course means that it might be a shorter episode, who knows. But I did want to, of course, talk about a few things at the beginning of the show as my little intro. So first of all, I had a couple Twitter polls up, right? There was the important one of rating Donovan's performance on the previous episode. And then I also asked you if you had listened to the entire episode to tell me whether or not you thought the peanut tin incident of 2019 was funny or not. And so I have the results of those there. So first of all, I said, if you heard the latest episode of BTO, please rate the funniness of the peanut tin incident of 2019 as requested by Ellie. The options were LOL funny, mildly amusing, and meh. So 63% of people who chimed in, which there were eight people said it was LOL funny, 25% said mildly amusing, and 13% said meh. I did text or screenshot this particular Twitter poll to Ellie, and she was a little dumbfounded as to why people thought it was funny, but I'm glad you were on my side and thought that it was in fact funny. The other one, which was perhaps more important, was for you guys to rate Donovan Morgan Grant on my latest episode, which was episode 178, and did he deserve or does he deserve to be my semi-regular co-host? So 17 people chimed in. No one voted two stars and below, which would have been my vote. 12% said three stars, 6% said four, and a whopping 82% were paid out of pocket by Donovan somehow and got five stars. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily what, you know, are you going to lead me to actually let him be my semi-regular co-host when it comes to Cass? The jury is still out for sure. I also want to talk a little bit about Orvieto because I didn't want to talk about it when Don was on, you know, just not waste his time, even though I was his time with the World Cup, of course, 2019. But Orvieto was a delightful trip. It was, for the most part, I would say it was professional development. It was something that I could do. And what we talked about is something that I could bring to the school that I work at and also incorporate it into my lessons as well. As I mentioned before, the theme for all these are what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? So this intersection between 
classical philosophers and thoughts and religious thinkers as well. Is there a connection? And then the sub-theme was virtues and vices. So a lot of those readings we had dealt with virtues and vices. I did all the readings like a nerd in June. I divided it up so that I was reading one chapter of the book from the leader, from John Skillen, and then a reading or two from what we did. And I enjoyed a lot of the readings. I think there were just a couple that, like St. Gregory, I, I did not, or Gregory the Great, or Pope Gregory. There was one that was just the dullest that I had. And then Aquinas, just his layout of his readings, which was very much like an argument, I did not like as well. But they were very worthwhile, I would say, number one, and edifying also. And just I I learned a great deal. I got to have some of Cicero as well, which was great. And the discussions were pretty good as well. We generally, you know, every day we would wake up and I would go on a run. I, I ran six out of the eight days. And it was funny because one day I ran and a man asking me where the bus station was in Italian. And I had to say, non capisco Italiano, and then kept running. But I guess he thought maybe there wouldn't be a tourist running randomly. But it was nice just to, to wake up and run. And then breakfast was had. And the, the leader, John Skillen, he very much encouraged us to go out and to the bars, which were cafes, and experience that rather than stay inside. But I would just have, you know, yogurt. And then I would read some East of Eden, which was my big read. And then for about three hours, we would have a discussion and then a big lunch. And then we would often have free time and then come back and have dinner or have a have a later discussion. And yeah, so we had more free time than I thought we would. And I just explored the town, which was a cliffside town. And one day I actually spent four hours trying to walk the entire town and stay as much to the periphery as possible. But, you know, take my time and taking stops and everything. And at one point I had gone on so many declines I had to go on an incline to get back and the incline that I went up was so steep that my back was hurting because I was leaning over so much it was insane but that was that was a great day I stopped and read some Plato's Republic and we had of course day trips to Florence and Siena and looked at some cathedrals and the town hall in Siena and had a real fun day in Siena because there was this fresco of leading figures during specifically the the second Punic War and there was Latin there and everything and John brought me up there and he's like tell, tell us about that and so I was you know reading some of the Latin real time and talking about who these particular people were and you know what their importance was but I need to do some research to figure out why they were focusing specifically on people in the second Punic War and I wondered what place Siena had in that particular in that particular war and we also spent a lot of time at the Duomo that's actually in Orvieto which I would say is Orvieto's like main attraction and my guy Virgil was there and got to talk to him and asked a question why you know why would Ovid be in a church because of all the people I like Ovid I like his style I like I think he's a funny guy but also you know there's a reason he was exiled uh, because he is a bit scandalous so I thought you know what's that about and so I got John off on a little on a little derailment got to read some Dante for the first time ever and I always expected Dante was going to be this really intense and difficult to understand guy but it was actually it was better and I'll say easier easier than I thought at least but it was something that was certainly 
really interesting. We only did excerpts, so I'm interested to read a little bit more. And I've already had some discussions with a new colleague who his, I guess I'll say his claim to fame is as a Dante scholar, and he's going to be teaching Virgil and then Dante. And so we've had discussions and went up to him and said, you know, if if you need to talk to Virgil, I'm your girl. And uh, one day, we Virgil is Virgil heavy, and we're talking about the need. And that was like the one day that I like super participated, which I was really proud of myself. And then he brought up the Georgics, and Georgic number ooh, three or four, I think, is the one that there are some allusions to Christ. And so I got to talk about that, which was a weird circumstance because I saw Georgics, the Georgics, Virgil's Georgics, on the shelf there at Orvieto at the monastery that we stayed at. And I just said, oh, I'll read this, which my roommate laughed at me because she's like of all the things you could read for fun you know you're reading this and you're reading another book because I had of course he's in there too but it was funny because I was reading it and then he mentioned about the Georgics and I was like oh I can tell you about that since I just read it roommate had no you know I don't know if I talked about Kenya and my roommate difficulties which was you know 50% my fault 50% not my fault I would say but this time it was it was much better because we it was a colleague of mine we got along really well similar sense of humor so we were able to joke and I feel like I got closer to it as well which is really great I guess that's I mean I could probably talk a lot of stuff about Orvieto and I'm still trying to work out what I'm going to do, how I'm going to bring all the stuff that I learned back in, because I always do a unit on virtues and vices or looking at early Roman heroes and seeing what virtues they extolled and why Romans would look at them and value them. And then, of course, when I'm doing AP and Caesar, you've got virtues or flaws that the the leaders have, and, and Caesar uses certain episodes or anecdotes to talk about them so it's always in there but I want to do a little something more so I'm trying to work out how exactly to do that and and also we were considering my colleague and I how do how does the fact that we have a house system and the houses are the four cardinal virtues which are prudence temperance justice and fortitude and the fact that we have these games that compete against each other and we don't look at it holistically the students are just like hey I'm in prudentia we're what you know all that and and now we're at a point where we're beyond the initiation of those houses as perhaps not the the best word inception of the houses we're we're beyond it to enough of a point that we are unable to potentially name and talk about them because at the beginning we focused a lot on that but now we're not so thinking about how we could bring that more holistically at at school as well and of course, the connection to the three ecclesiastical, which is not the right one, the three, three Christian virtues. And then, of course, I went to Valencia and met up with Ellie. And then another student later came. She was over. She was taking uh, the weekend over in Portugal, and she came back over. So I got to hang out with her on Monday. But with Ellie, uh, the first day I saw her was that Friday, and we went to an aquarium. And Saturday, we went to a nudist beach, which was interesting. And Sunday, we went to uh, another mass because I was kind of in this mass mode of of several going to different churches because I went to two in Orvieto. And so I thought, well, might as well see what this is like and had this awkward moment where if you're not Catholic, you can't receive the Eucharist. So you just go up there and you cross your arms, which, okay, but you receive a blessing. So I went up at that was fine in Orvieto, but I went up to the guy in uh, at, at Valencia 
and he's holding out the wafer and he sees my arms and he's still holding it out like very insistent that I take it and then he just taps my head and that's it it was a very sad blessing that I received and then I went back and I told Ellie about this and she said I just knew something weird was going to happen when you went up there so well it did Ellie you were right other yeah just hanging out I think on Sunday and and walking around oh we did tour the um on Monday she had to go back to class and I met her for lunch and then afterwards that she was actually sick that day we went to tour the Valencia football club stadium which was really fun and interesting and and something that I've never done before so that was cool and yeah then I left Tuesday and it was very special both places I I think were very edifying and and I learned a great deal and I think my my top moment when people asked me certainly was I think being at the beach with Ellie not that it was a nudist beach but just having like adult and serious conversations and deep conversations with her and because she's very much you know she's a former student of mine taught her two years but I've been close with the family so she's more you know even than a friend but but certainly like a younger sister for me to me so it's it was that was a great time and I was happy that my sense of humor, because I wasn't sure at Orvieto how it was going to fly. You know, did I have to be the style that was quiet and flying under the radar or what could I do? But little by little, I let it out and uh, it was appreciated. And, you know, John Skillen had a sense of humor as well. So I was able to rib him a little bit. There were certainly some I kept quotes for sure. And at one point, someone new had been there and, and one of the members said, this is Stella, our witty members. I had a bit of a reputation around me, but I was glad. And I didn't, you know, I stayed on the line for sure. So that was, that was Orvieto and, and wish I could go back, but, or, or do something similar to that again. It was, it was great. And the final thing I want to talk about was kind of a soft recommendation for people, especially I think people that deal with teens or perhaps teach high school. I don't, yeah, you kind of surround yourself with it. And it's a soft recommendation because I recommend it, but I at the same time, I'm hesitant to recommend it. And it's the HBO show called Euphoria. And I'm hesitant to recommend it because I would say the trailer, the trailer does not tell anything I think about it uh, all I could really tell is that Zendaya or Zendaya is playing a character who has just gotten out of rehab for a drug addiction she had an overdose and so that's basically all I had known about it and so I thought well I'll give this a shot see what this is like and you know that you're really going to get into something when HBO has a warning of parental discretion advised um <laughs> you know f- when it's HBO, because I don't think they've ever done that for Game of Thrones. So boy, I will say I've never seen as many penises on a show that I have uh, on this particular show, which on the one hand, you're like, ooh, too many. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, thank you, because there certainly is a double standard with female nudity versus male nudity. But the reason why I'm talking about it is because I think it really gives a good look and a truthful and authentic look into what teenagers are actually going through because I think on the surface when we look at them they seem like they're pretty well formed but they I mean they have this great mask about them and and I don't think we understand what they're actually going through and and some things have come to light at my school that like a lot of the stuff that had been going on in that tv show is very much stuff that we found out uh, has been going on to a certain extent in one of the particular classes and yeah just to to get a sense of you know 
what teenagers are actually going through, you know, the, the threat of porn, um, drinking and drugs, of course, and sex and experimenting with sex, but also sexual assault that comes with that and perhaps unknowing sexual assault, but, you know, using the, the trick of, well, if you don't do this, you're not cool. And, but maybe they're not being education at saying that, hey, that is actually sexual assault because you're forcing someone to do something you don't have, but, and, yeah, so it's happened, but you didn't really have their consent. So just things like that. And it was certainly a show that I could not binge. You know, one was enough at, at a daytime. But I thought that I really liked, uh, there are a couple characters. The drug dealer actually was one of my favorite characters, which is kind of weird. But he just really cared for our main character, Zendaya's character. And like trying, he walked her out at one point and was like, I'm not dealing to you at all and uh there's a sister Maud Maud Apatow which is the daughter of now I can't think of her name but uh Judd and ugh, that woman who pops up in all of Judd Apatow's now I can't remember her name but someone's probably screaming at me she was like a fly under the radar character but it was uh she's really funny and there was this really great uh moment in one of the episodes of a Halloween party and Maud played uh well her character was dressed as bob ross and there's this weird interrogation scene with her and zadaya's character it was yeah it was good but i just caution you but i also feel like if don't be blind to the things that are actually coming at teenagers these days and you know you look at them and you think oh they're okay they wouldn't get into that chances are they are and i think just to to be aware of that and so this could potentially give a good sense of of what that might be like for them so there you go okay well now let's get into the reviews and i have a couple nightwing issues not do synopses but just say what's happening in there nightwing 42 there is a kiss between Clancy and Dick after a celebration because he graduates and he's in the Blue Haven Police Department now, which I'll get back to that. But he does ask Oracle for some help to get some info on this Mark Arnault guy, Mac, sorry, Mac Arnault, because he feels like he's a bit of a shifty character, which is interesting because he also will later work with Tad, a.k.a. Knight, N-I-T-E wing, and apparently he's not a shifty character. But anyways, he they are chatting, and she warns him that there's a power vacuum now in Bloodhaven, and people are trying to fill it. And Alistair Bendel-White, who used to be a fixer or is a fixer for Intergain, is someone who's popping up. And then he changes a little bit and he says, Barbara, I have a question. So she knows already, oh, this is something because he calls her Oracle normally on air. So but the Barbara thing is more of a personal question. He asks her who's Jason Bard because if you remember, there's that one point where Jason Bard goes to visit Babs. Babs is out, but Dick is doing some maintenance on her. Uh, sorry, whoo, that was weird. Maintenance on her door or her apartment. And uh, so there's that awkward thing. And uh, she, it's really awkward. And she says, gotta fly and uh, Oracle out. And he says, yeah, me too. And at the end of this, of course, there's blockbusters popping up and saying he's still on the search for who this Oracle person is because he, as 
he assumes is stealing all of that cash. In 43, there's an interest moment between Clancy and Dick, and Clancy is really trying to make something happen, and Dick says, hey, someone that's been in my life for a long time, something has been happening recently, and, and make it serious, and Clancy is fine there, but then she exits and starts crying, and Dick also has this uh, very sexy photo of him with Babs in, in bathing suits, which I think pops up again actually in the Nightwing annual number two. And then finally in issue 44, which actually sets up Hunt for Oracle, Oracle gives the information on Mac Arnault to Nightwing, and then Nightwing and Nightwing bust in on Blockbuster, but they're at one point both knocked out. And he believes that this is going to be the way to find who Oracle is. So there you go. So leading us into the hunt for Oracle, which is also something that these Birds of Prey issues do. So we're going to do a full review now. Birds of Prey number 18, the hateful writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Dick Giordano, inker Jackson Geis, and colorist Gloria Vasquez. The cover date is June 2000. And thanks to DC Wikia for uh, having Wikia for having a synopsis. It wasn't that nice. En route to a vacation. But thanks to a booking mistake by Oracle, Black Canary finds herself caught in the crossfire of Krasny attacks on the country of Transbelvia. She helps some local residents, especially kids, taking refuge in a subway station. Down there, Donna gets to know a woman named Verinia, who tells her how this war between neighboring countries is about a centuries-old rift, whose exact reason nobody seems to remember anymore. Then Dinah watches how a mother with two kids asks a man with a full bag of food to share some of that food. The man shows no interest, so a little later Dinah approaches the man and shoves him. A newspaper falling out of his back indicates he is a Krasny, and immediately he gets attacked by the locals. Now Dinah wants to protect the man, but she is overwhelmed and has to watch how Verinia kills the man using a brick. Oracle had radio contact with Canary the whole time and now tells her that the fighting has stopped and she's clear to move on. Oracle also says that Jason Bard, who just had surgery on his eyes, wants to meet her, but she is not ready yet and even yells earlier, yells at Dinah for prying and asking questions. Meanwhile, Blockbuster, the crime lord of Bluthaven, is enraged by the amount of money Oracle has siphoned off from his bank accounts once again. Okay, so beginning with the cover, of course, we do not have a Barbara or a Dinah, so I guess kind of Carolyn knows, but we do have their symbols, and then we have a little girl who's who kind of looks like, I think her name was Sin, it's been a while since I've read those, but the adopted daughter of Dinah, so that's interesting. But you also have these shadows of men with weapons, and her hands are outstretched, and there's blood. So it, it almost points to what happens on the inside for sure. So we start right into the main action in this particular issue, which is different from normal. So it's certainly a wake up and pay attention moment for this issue. My first question, of course, is, is it reasonable that Barbara made a mistake? She, Dinah was on a particular mission. It kind of seemed like she had to go on vacation, but you find out later she did have another mission and she was supposed to go through London. And so Babs is apologizing a couple of times at the beginning of this while Dinah is racing to the subway. And it seems unlikely that Barbara would make that sort of technological mistake or anything. And so 
So potentially she did make the mistake. On the other side, you have to ask your, yourself, you know, if she did not, what would be a, the purpose of that? Was it ulterior motives? She knew there was this sort of thing. She thought maybe Donna could help or hijinks. I don't know. Probably not kind of hijinks, but maybe she thought she could kill two birds with one stone. There are two moments in this issue where I don't understand why Dinah is saying what she is saying. First, on page 11, where the woman is telling the sad history of the conflict, all Dinah says is, it's hard for me to understand. And the woman speaks pretty decent English, as we can tell, not only from the writing, but from Dinah saying so. But you, I mean, is it? She doesn't understand how this happened. Um, it seems like a pretty straightforward, you know, hate is everywhere sort of situation. If there are any sort of differences, it's going to pop up. And I mean, we see this in real time. We see this now. We see this in the past. So I don't understand why she doesn't understand. And I don't know if it's it's probably not necessarily like a lack of empathy that she has because I think she's trying to want to I mean she wants to understand but she's got some inability of doing so but she's at least listening but just the fact that she says I don't understand is a little odd because certainly there are things that she's been through that I think would be able to help her understand what this woman is talking about later on page 12 Regarding the family asking a man for food, the woman that she's always, Verinia, she says that the war has coarsened them. And then Dinah says, but the kid's hungry, clearly. You're saying the same thing. So I kind of wonder what that is about. You know, they're not giving the food. War has coarsened them. But the kid's hungry. It's A but is the idea that you are contradicting what the other person had said. But she, you know... It's kind of a weird thing. You know, yes, war has coarsened. I mean, unless you're saying that, yes, I understand that war has coarsened you, but there's a kid right there and he's hungry, so that should mean nothing. That could be potentially it. But when I was reading it a couple times, I thought, well, that, that, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Donna makes a rash and irresponsible decision when she lays hands on that man, which leads to his death. And that woman, ugh. After all of her preaching, she kills that man. And I guess the vengeance for her father was more important than her morality. But just to think of all that stuff leading up to it, everything she had talked about and all of this witnessing that she had done almost for pacification, she goes and does that. And I thought, number one, the irony and also the tragedy for sure. But Dinah, yikes, making that really poor decision and then not jumping in there and stopping and... uh, Man, I guess I see some similarities there with Huntress for sure, right? Because Huntress felt outnumbered and she couldn't hop in there either and and stop what had happened. I like that Dinah can now tell the difference between the various tones on Oracle only on the air. She also reveals that she knows her name is Babs. And this is a big moment and rightfully met with shock and annoyance at Nightwing as she throws his doll across the room. But... I do wonder if Dinah is prying or just trying to be a friend when she's asking all these follow-up questions to Oracle of why don't you want to meet Jason? Because I think she's potentially trying to get to know Barbara a little bit more, make it a little bit more personal, and so on the friend side. But also I think, you know, she's just generally interested and she had met Jason, right? Is Oracle a little extreme in her reaction here? I think so, And, and, you know, she apologizes later, right? But we also know Oracle is is very 
cards close to the chest and she doesn't want I think this relationship with Dinah to be too personal and that's why she has that wall up and she doesn't want too much known about her which is a good question as to why why she doesn't I don't know that I've ever thought about that before that's something that I should look into and I think something that once we get to the hunt of oracle is something that I will talk about I should ask that with my co-host but yeah, so she wants to be closed off, and so that's that's a breach right there. She wants to keep that personal, and, and I think it also hits on some stuff of the past because we'll see in the next issue that they were engaged, she broke it off. So there's a lot of hidden feelings there that she, I, I think Dinah just touches on a lot of stuff at once by asking, and she does not like the prying. I find it interesting that Barbara knew Jason was at the hospital, but he doesn't ask how she, she knows. And this is probably the most tension between these two characters that I've ever seen in the vintage era, not in the the new Batgirl, but just some of the the hits that they both take, especially Barbara, I think, is the one that's dealing it out about him uh, leaving and, and things like that. Of course, we've got the prologue, which is at the end with Blockbuster getting even angrier and his mother telling him to watch his heart. So we are leading, leading, leading into a big moment there. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 birds. The character beats, I think, are the best moments. Just seeing Barbara, Barbara's reaction to Jason, Barbara and Oracle, uh, sorry, Barbara and Dinah, and then Dinah with that woman, Dinah messing up and, and all of this stuff. It's clearly a one-shot that you know, is leading more into the Hunt for Oracle storyline. So there are just a couple moments, I think, that you can pull out that are really the worthwhile ones that are leading us towards that. Next up is Birds of Prey number 19, Masks. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist Jackson Geis, colorist Gloria Vasquez, and July 2000 is the cover date. Oracle and Robin are having a training session in Barbara's new virtual reality projection room, i.e. the danger room. They have to stop fighting some big bugs when Dick Grayson comes for a visit. But when Ted Cord arrives a few minutes later, either Dick or Robin have to leave because they are not supposed to know each other. So it's Dick who hides in the projection room where Robin has set up a simulation with the tiger while Robin is eager to meet the actual blue beetle. Black Canary is giving Oracle a short mission update. She is in Hazaragua to intercept a group of arms dealers. It's like Nicaragua, but not. And everything is going smoothly so far. As if Dick and Ted are not enough, Barbara's ex-boyfriend, ex-fiance, Jason Bard appears as well. Barbara agrees to talk with him outside of the clock tower. Although Jason did lose his eyesight recently, he recognizes that Barbara has to use a wheelchair, which is a big moment there. Meanwhile, Black Canary gets taken down by Lady Vic and Brutale. Apparently, they have set up Dinah because with her, they have an agent of Oracle in their grasp. So first of all, the cover, you have a a total fake out, right? You've got Robin in the front. You do have Barbara with her wheelchair and you can see her legs and they're just very scared and frightened. And it says Robin visits the birds of prey. Hope he survives the experience, which really Barbara, hopefully she survives the experience. I really liked the art in this particular issue. It It was, I feel like a change from what we've had. I don't know how to describe it. I just felt like it was clean, very beautiful Barbara, which not as if she's not ever, but just a very different take, I think, on her. And 
I don't know, mature? Is that something I could say to to talk about the art? But it was just, it was very different take on the art. And I think maybe clean would be the way that I would clean and, and detailed would be how I would describe it. So back to basics here with an intro that is more humorous and absolutely a fake out, which starts from the cover. It is confirmed here that Barbara does not yet know Tim's ID, or at least he believes that she does not, and he even takes it as a point of pride because she knows Superman's, but does not know Tim's. I like Babs's reason for being in the danger room or even having the danger room. It's certainly a way to increase how active she can be in the field and detectiving, so she can do more than just being on the headset. This story connects back to the Gotham City Secret Files, where they installed all the cables together, so I liked that. Dinah, on page six, that pose. I mean, I'm pretty sure she should be dead or her spine should be broken. And I was thinking that maybe artists, before they do a pose, they actually have to be able to physically do it themselves. And if that happened, then maybe we would actually have realistic poses, but I'm not sure if that'll ever happen. Then the shenanigans begin as more and more men come to the watchtower and it gets increasingly awkward and Babs keeps saying, now what? And this is funny. There's my harem. This is my funny harem. Shout out to Derek Crabb who created a little scene with Barbara and her harem. This normally happens with men, right? Like exes start coming in, but it's Barbara. And this is, this is, I, I loved this. You know, Dick is showing some jealousy of Ted when Bab says that they're friends. He's wondering what does that mean? And you also wonder how Tim was able to convince Dick to hide. What argument was he able to use? And, you know, Dick is older and bigger. You think there would have been a tussle and then Tim would have been locked in there, but I guess not. Then we have Jason popping in and, in the previous issue, didn't he say that he had his final operation? So shouldn't he be able to see now? So that was very strange. But here we find out more about the end of these two, that they were engaged. And basically, the killing joke ruined them, though Jason didn't know this. And Babs does say that it's only one of the reasons. We get more insight into Barbara's character here, especially after the killing joke, though there is some residual reasons, I think, that she didn't want to see Jason and, and something that... Um, I think they will certainly talk about as well. And, and I think being Oracle and once being Batgirl and then being Oracle now and having that gap of time, I think, is, is certainly one of them and not really having a purpose. I think she entered that bout of depression, right? And Oracle really was something that gave her purpose. And so I, I think once you hit your low, the trough of your life, you kind of want to push people away and perhaps focus on yourself or just focus on your misery, which that could have been either thing that, that Barbara was doing. But we get more reasons here and, and more insight into Barbara for sure and this relationship. I wonder if Jason is now a member of the birds. She does say that she will offer him work, but not necessarily a friendship or a relationship. So she is being very cautious, which I think this is Barbara's MO. So I completely get that. It's funny that Tim is scared of staying behind once Ted decides to leave. So he's scared of staying behind with Dick because Dick is in the room. And he, I think, you know, Dick is going to come out and be very angry. And so he tags along with Ted and then Dick comes out of the danger room and he's just wondering where everyone is. It is difficult to follow what actually physically happens to Dinah on the penultimate page because she's on the box and then she's falling off the box. But the main thing to know is that she's been captured. And this, of course, is leading to the hunt for Oracle. I'm going to give this a 9.5 out of 10 hilarious harems. I 
I give this high marks mainly because of all the character interactions, how the characterization Babs is developed in just this single issue. Or if not developed, it's at least giving us a window inside her, I think, in her mind and her heart. And you kind of have to wonder why now, right? Why issue 19? The Dinah stuff was almost a distraction, but we did need it to lead into the hunt for Oracle. So like I said, that important thing was the last page. So this was this was a great, fun side issue. And now it's getting important, right? The reason why I think we're focusing a lot on Barbara and her character and her feelings and her head and her heart is because it's going to be huge for Hunt for Oracle. So this is actually, that particular story on Hunt for Oracle is something I've been really waiting to cover. It's huge. It's huge. So there you go. Okay, now it's time for some listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail. When it comes, I wanna wail. First up, regarding episode 177, Ian Miller, a.k.a. Ian Prime, wrote in. He said, Dear Stella, sorry I'm so late in listening, but I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary on Birds of Prey 15 through 17. This is one of my all-time favorite arcs of Birds of Prey, where Oracle faces off against Joker, and her control and dialogue is perfect. The best confrontation between the two they've ever had, which is both awesome but also sad, since there have been attempts to rematch them a few other times, and it's never been nearly as good. The Power Girl hints are a really cool through line for Dixon's run and I really enjoyed the sense that it builds complexity into both Power Girl and Oracle's characters. Thanks. Also on episode 17, nope, Wow, could you imagine? Episode 177, Heather Fodor. She said, I really love this podcast. I'm going to listen to them all in order. Whoo, bless you, Heather. There isn't a better Barbara Gordon podcast. Thank you. Have you covered Batman White Knight? It's so good. I haven't covered Batman White Knight at all. I haven't even read it, though I did see a solicitation and Barbara was on the cover of one. I thought, oh, I wonder what she's doing in there. I think I read a couple of them when I was still on the Batman Universe comic comic cast, but I haven't since them and regarding episode 178 also from ian miller donovan for regular co-host for the cast backroll issues spider-man far from home comments extremely thoughtful in pros and cons secret files really fun little series of stories backroll number one through three Donovan's insights and passion are incredible. I actually agree with Stella about the sense the reader gets that Cass can't make a difference because despite all her skill, her narrative seems to end more often with failure rather than success. But Donovan is absolutely right that it's a brilliantly crafted, beautifully illustrated series that deserves much more recognition. And I think he's the one to do it. Give me a break, Ian. How much did he pay you? His comment about how Cass's failures make the series really feel human is fascinating, as that's the exact same response I received when I've discussed the series and this particular issue with another very thoughtful Cassandra Kane fan. I loved hearing Donovan's thoughts on Batman and the way that in 2000 to 2006, when Denny and Morrison started writing him, the editorial who took over from Denny O'Neill really pushed Batman into an unreasonable position. I disagree with him about how Batman treated Huntress, I'm with Stella, thank you, and think that he should not have played the games he did with Helena, and really love the Batman Huntress Cry for Blood series as an examination of the consequences of that storyline. But I think that Batman is a really powerful character, and appreciate Donovan's intelligent passion for who he is and what he can represent at his best. 
I myself obviously share Stella's Stephanie Bias, smiley emoticon, but I'm so glad to have someone as well versed and enthusiastic as Donovan to argue Cassandra's merits. New Birds of Prey news. I'm really apprehensive about the writer, but the artist is amazing. I hope it'll be good, though, as Birds of Prey is a very special title for me because of Gail Simone's first run. Batgirl's handoff issues. I like the Jason Bard stuff. 100% agree that Scott was much better than Larson, though I think Scott's plotting was much weaker than her characterization. 100% with Donovan on needing multiple Batgirls. The Future's End issue really inspired me with the idea of a league of Batgirls. I don't see why DC doesn't do that. Yeah, I don't either. I think... You know, if I were to make a guess, I I think they're uncomfortable. I really do think they're uncomfortable with that many women potentially or just Batgirls, period, running around. And I also think they're uncomfortable and they don't have someone that could handle that as in write it well. And so they are not doing it. So and they did try that Robin's title, which what was that called? Just Robin's. And that wasn't very good. I don't know even if it had much critical critical acclaim. I think it was given this short deadline to see if it did well, and it did not, so it kept that short deadline. So there you go. At first when you said Birds of Prey news, I was thinking about the movie because they just released something from like the Czech Republic or some place has a new trailer out. It's very quick. Many things are happening and it's kind of got an it feel at the beginning, which I wondered how you could do that. But it's supposed to be the new trailer for the film is supposed to be in theaters before the re-released Far From Home. So there you go. Well, as always, you can write in to backgirltheoracle at gmail.com or you can post on the website as these lovely people did and I will absolutely see that. I'm going to take a break and when I come back I will be reviewing Backroll number 90 aka 38 but first it is Zias's Radio Hour featuring Your Own Worst Enemy by Bruce Springsteen. You can't sleep at night
Okay, and we're back for the last little bit of this episode. First up is Backroll, number 38 or 90, Oracle Rising, part two. Writer Cecil Casalucci, artist Carmine Dijon Domenico, colorist Jordi Belair. Picking up where the last issue left off, Batgirl is still falling through the sinkhole and is being harassed by various killer moth nanos. She throws a batarang at a safety sprinkler and the water destroys the nanos. She later begins her trek home, but without proper gear, has to take the subway where people confuse her for a vagrant and offer her money. She soon gives that money to Birdie, the man who lives outside her apartment, and with her costume torn, she Frankensteins together several old costumes and then goes to sleep, which hopefully I'll remember to talk about that. The next day at Alejo's office, apparently Babs still works there, question mark, question mark. Alejo asks for Babs' help in writing her keynote speech for the Smart Tech Thought Conference. Babs is still tired, and Jason is concerned with her bruises. She says it was her workout and invites him to her next one. He takes her up on the offer, and they go to the gym that she joined after her quote-unquote operation. The owner, Luis, covers for her and pretends that a bout with him caused the bruises. Babs suddenly gets a notification that there is a robbery and runs out, leaving Jason Barr behind. She takes down various crooks as Killer Moth watches on TV. Killer Moth is still waiting for his invitation, so he suits up and uses his last bit of money to go after Batgirl. Since she has learned not to underestimate him and uses a jammer to eliminate all his tech, they have to fight with fists. They crash the tech conference, and Batgirl takes down Killer Moth while he continues to mutter to some unknown person. Jason Bard calls Batgirl a menace, and Batgirl knows there's someone bigger behind all of this, and she needs to find out who that is. While all this is going on, Luther has a talk with Oracle while ignoring the terrible trio. Lex tells her that she was discarded, but she's not useless, and with her new life, he is excited to see what she does. He leaves, and the terrible trio realize that Oracle was the person who took bad guys down all the time. Oracle tries to look for information about her past, and she ends up popping up in old systems. She ends up getting corrupted, and the trio try to pull the plug. She snaps out of it, but wants to know her purpose and how she failed. The trio know a girl called Ada, who has some experience with tech, and they bring Oracle to her. Ada is immediately killed by Oracle, saying she was being deceived. The trio goes along with it, saying it was a test and Ada was an enemy. But through all that, Oracle learns that her creator is Batgirl and her mission is to destroy Batgirl. Next, the hunt for Batgirl begins. So my favorite panel, absolutely, is the last page with the dual face, right? You've got Oracle and Batgirl on either side and this dichotomy of purpose as well. The, the layout here. Actually, before I even start that, I have to say that I had this very strange feeling because as I was reading this for the first time and and preparing to recap it and everything, I opened it up and like I had this sense of purpose when I sat down to actually do it. And then when I actually opened it up, I had this sort of low feeling of, you know, oh, I've got to read this, which was I think it's the first time I've gotten there at least in a while, probably Hope Larson is something that I, I may have dreaded. But this was just like this feeling of, man, I'm I'm not satisfied. I'm not excited to read this, which is sad, right, for being a Batgirl fan. And I think to a certain extent, I'm just bored right now because I, I this keeps popping up. I just feel like I'm reading the same thing over and over again. There's nothing new. And it was just the first time it really hit me. I like sat back and I thought, wow, I haven't had that 
that wash that that wash over me for a while. So back to this, I'm on either side of this parallel story layout, right? It's going back and forth between the two. The way I do my recap is all for one because it's just confusing, right? It just goes back and forth. So it's a little bit jarring, but it does have them at least running together and intersecting without physically intersecting and, and running up against each other. So there's almost an artistic thing about it, but also I, I don't like it as much, but... Otherwise, you know, if you do it as I did with my, and this is funny, this is kind of like how I tell my AP students because when they have a comparison essay, I say you have two ways to tackle it, either look at the one and talk about it all thoroughly, right, and then the next one and then have this third paragraph that sort of compares the two or you can do them side by side, it's up to you. The side by side one though is is often more difficult and you just really have to be on it. So it's it's that there, right? You have to really be on it and it has to really just work and, and I think sometimes it does. Like the end was great. That was nice, but eh, you know, I, I didn't really like the back and forth. So this costume, right? This Frankenstein costume, which is really interesting to look at. I think someone even makes a comment in the in the book of like, oh, that's a cool costume, you know, for social media. But, you know, on Google, because it sort of tracks what I'm interested in, one of the topics was actually Batgirl's new costume. And I didn't click on it because I thought it's got to be, because it can't come out just after this issue. This has got to be talking about that. And that's not a new costume. It's just her putting pieces together. And... It's a little bit annoying, right? Because you had this really interesting costume with Burnside Run, and now she's come back and she's gotten rid of that. So she's going back to basics with Gotham, and now that's all torn up. And so now it's almost like these different eras are coming together, and that could be cool if the story was also fitting that. Maybe it is, who knows, with Oracle, but I just feel like, eh, we'll see. We'll see if if there's uh, more symbolism with that costume or not. Ada. Her purpose. What was it? I wondered at one point if the Terrible Trio were setting her up because basically the one, uh, I think it was Fox, said that she owes me a favor, but she immediately is killed. And gosh, Ada didn't really do much, I guess, except for maybe have a, a, a good system because Oracle, after that interaction, is able to figure out who her creator is. But this also sets up a huge question of how Oracle, an AI, knows without any sort of information about Ada that Ada was, in fact, deceitful, right? That reading human interactions and characterizations, I think we've learned from enough media incarnations of AI that it takes a while for them to understand. But if she knows that Ada was deceitful, how does she not know that the trio are deceitful and they set her up? So that's a little strange. I don't understand that. Barbara's Peter Parker continues, and somehow she gets Luis dragged into it, covering for her and the bruises and then her skirting out of there. It may seem helpful now, but what if she actually were a victim of domestic violence and he's covering? And he's covering because she pays money to a charity, which she doesn't really have money now, so that's not going to flow anymore. So that's a little strange. Riding the subway home seems dramatic and not fun like when Spidey does it in the video game when you have to go across town. It's your your quick way of getting across the city. But yeah, I kind of want to ask the dumb question of why couldn't you swing home? I guess she used everything up in that battle, which again, you're kind of wondering when did this happen? But I guess we're really focusing on the fact that she really has no more money and she's got to deal with her situation as it is. I think the main conceit that this whole story involves is that Oracle has a body. 
But it hasn't been explained how or why this happened since Oracle was never a separate identity. It was always Barbara. So I'm wondering when this exactly happened. I think this would make a lot of sense if it were the the faux Batgirl persona that was in the Burnside run and that she has incorporated and taken this body. Unless there's something in continuity that I am missing that, you know, Oracle was uploaded into this unique personality separate from Barbara and Barbara let it run like a program. Yeah, I just had a moment to think about it. I really can't think about I mean, I'm even thinking about Gus. Like, that was all, there's always someone behind it. I, I think Barbara, while she does trust in technology, can only take her so far. But maybe, I don't know, because she has those alerts and everything. Perhaps, perhaps we'll see something where she set it up and thought it could go on cruise control. But gosh, that just seems like Matrix is about to happen and Terminator is about to happen. Who knows? My final huge, huge, huge question is how is Barbara Gordon still working in the congresswoman's office? Remember, she basically said peace with that whole, I think, James Jr. thing. And oh, my gosh. How what? She's been giving unlimited chances. Is she even being paid now or is it a volunteer? Volunteer, absolutely get rid of her. I don't even, did she finish that speech before she broke in through the glass ceiling? Some weird stuff is going down. So... This is, yeah, it was moderately okay. I think uh, we just have to see. We need more information, I think, especially on the Oracle side and see how that goes. So I think, ooh, I think I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10 bats. Yeah. So there you go. Okay, well, let's see and let us hope that in October we get some answers and maybe it increases and I also don't have a terrible feeling when I open up the comic to sit down and read it for the first time. Now over to Chris for his cornucopia of curiosities. Ah, that's like having a great fantasy football draft and your Latin teacher not assigning you too much homework at the beginning of the semester. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much, listeners, for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today I'm covering Batman Adventures number 23 and in the Nightwatch segment, Nightwing number 63. Batman Adventures number 23 was cover dated August 1994 and cover priced at $1.50. Once again, we have our usual creative team of Kelly Pickett for the writer, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story was reprinted in the Batman Adventures Volume 3, however, it does not appear to be available on Comixology, and I don't know if this is available on any of DC's media services. Our story today is entitled Toxic Shock. Act 1. Strange Bedfellows. Night in downtown Gotham. Batman chases two male suspects into Gotham Central Station. He crashes through a window and tackles one and throws a batarang through four pedestrians, which fells the other man. Batman collects a vial of poison from him. The poison was used on hospitalized Diego Rivera, a renowned environmentalist who has been protecting the Amazon rainforest, and he's being watched over by Commissioner Gordon and Gabriel Molinos, head of the South American Economic Council. Batman soon joins them, and tells Gordon that the poison was plant-derived, but there's no record of anything like it. Batman says he needs help with the antidote, from Poison Ivy. Batman goes to Arkham to ask Ivy for her help, and he finds that Ivy is already attempting to put a guard under her control. Ivy is reluctant to help, but Batman tells her that she can wear her costume and keep all the plants she wants, and security will be minimal, just Batman himself. Act 2. 
fighting poison with poison. Batman takes Ivy to a greenhouse-like laboratory. Ivy asks who they are supposed to cure, and Batman reveals that Diego Rivera is there. She is very familiar with him, and reveals that she admires his work in the Amazon, and she regards him as a hero. They find out the toxin came from a specific region of the Amazon. While Batman's back is turned, Ivy tests an antidote sample that works. At that moment, Rivera revives delirious and speaks Spanish, and he tells Ivy that she is a goddess. Batman comes to his aid and translates what Rivera said before Rivera loses consciousness and his condition gets worse. Just then, five men burst into the room, firing guns. Act 3. How Deadly Was My Valley? Batman hides Rivera and tells Ivy to move as they take cover. Using stealth and patterings, Batman takes out the men one by one. He finds Ivy has gone and escaped, but Rivera is now seemingly cured, and only Ivy knows what the cure was itself. Sensing someone lurking, Batman corrals someone in the darkness. It's Molinos! Molinos said Rivera's actions were driving away businesses, and that the toxin was found from the flowers of the valley of the Achichiano which took 20 men to retrieve, but only three returned. But not to worry about the poison ever coming to Gotham again. Or will it? As we turn to the final page and see Ivy wearing a backpack in the Achiano Valley, surrounded by the flowers. The end! Question mark. My notes. The cover for this issue depicts Batman seemingly captured and, quote, greened by Poison Ivy as she strikes a very seductive pose with a leg raised as she touches Batman, though this scene does not happen the issue. I'm not sure I'd complain about it. Perhaps ordinarily I would, and maybe an editor would as well. But this is a striking and compelling image. And speaking of the art, Burchett's inks really have not been better. The outwork was outstanding this issue, especially with Batman in the shadows when he catches the villains. There were so many excellent depictions of Ivy as well. As for the story, it'd be hard to see Ivy as a, quote, villain in the story. She cures Rivera, after all, but her deceit has her not sharing the cure with Batman and escaping. Hmm, I wonder if I would have preferred a more head-to-head clash. But Ivy as a character has evolved from someone who merely had a plant motif with designs on Batman to someone immune to poisons and toxins and controlling plants, and then someone as an anti-hero, or anti-villain, if you will. As I'm recording this, the Amazon forest is also burning, so I did feel a bit of a timeliness aspect to this when I read it. Eagle-eyed shippers may note that Ivy had a picture of Harley in her cell. I'm going to give Batman Adventures number 23, 8 out of 10 bats. This was a good story, but the great artwork really elevated this one for me. Now, for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I review the Nightwing title from a shipper's perspective. At the time of this recording, Nightwing number 63 is the current issue. As you may recall, things were pretty steamy in the previous issue, and things are not quite as hot this time around as Dick, er, Rick, Grayson and B share a kiss in B's bar. Between the scenes of Rick hanging out with the Nightwing team and Talon stalking everyone, including stabbing one of the Nightwing crew near to death, and B in jeopardy as the issue comes to close as Talon as William Cobb enters B's bar. Hmm. Potential fridge alert in the next issue? Yikes! That remains to be seen. As for the issue itself, well, we do have a kiss, so I'm going to give Nightwing number 63 a mild, repeat, mild shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. Listeners, be sure to check out Stella on the required reading podcast. I want to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out their podcast, Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensationalist Loose, Fantastic Fantasies, and Convention Correspondence. You can find me on Twitter at BTM Bat Books. That's where I'll tweet about, oh, Saturday morning salutes and old Batman comic books. I hope you like it and give it a try. 
The handle again is BTO on Batbooks. BTO as in Batgirl Oracle and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, another podcast that I can be heard on. That's where I co-host with Jerry and we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comics and other titles and movies and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please check it out if you're not doing so already. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast itself on the TBU website and consider giving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe, a website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family podcast, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. What relative of an animated series villain declares a vendetta on Batman? Who does she convince to aid her in trying to kill Batman? Will a family aid Batman, or will they want to be rid of him? And if so, how? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these vicious, violent, villainous, vibrant, vivid, vigorous vials will be viewed, virtuoso, visualized next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Well, now my anime watch list, which I didn't have any last month because I was sort of in between anime i suppose so the movie which is something that i would love to talk about to a longer extent is kiki's delivery service from 1989 i recently saw it for the first time on the big screen because it came through with the fathom events kiki a 13 year old witch in training must spend a year living on her own in a distant town in order to become a full-fledged witch leaving her family and friends kiki undertakes this tradition when she flies out into the open world atop her broomstick with her black cat Gigi. As she settles down to the coastal town of Corico, Kiki struggles to adapt and ends up wandering the streets with no place to stay, until she encounters Osono, who offers Kiki boarding in exchange for making deliveries for her small bakery. Before long, Kiki decides to open her own courier service by broomstick, beginning her journey to independence. In attempting to find her place among the townsfolk, Kiki brings with her exciting new experiences and comes to understand the true meaning of responsibility. This is my most favorite anime film. I have to say, actually, I could say most, my most famous, my most favoritist anime and period, but there will come a time when I talk about this longer, for sure. And the TV show that I watched was Silver Spoon, which ran two seasons, 22 episodes. Overall, the, the entirety of those two seasons was 22 episodes. 2013 to 2014 is its year. Yugo Hachikin is studious, hardworking, and tired of trying to live up to expectations he just cannot meet. With the ushering in of a brand new school year, he decides to enroll in Oezo Agricultural High School, a boarding school located in the Hokkaido countryside, as a means to escape from the stress brought upon his parents. Initially convinced that he would do well at this institution, Hachikin is quickly proven wrong by his talented classmates, individuals who have been living on farms their entire lives and know just about everything when it comes to food, vegetables, and even the physiology of livestock. Whether it be waking up at five in the morning for strenuous labor or to take care of farm animals, Hajikin is a complete amateur when it comes to the harsh agricultural life. Gin no Saiji, which is its Japanese name, follows the comedic story of a young student as he tries to fit into a completely new environment, meeting many unique people along the way. As he struggles to appreciate his surroundings, Hajikin hopes to discover his dreams so that he may lead a fulfilling life on his own terms. This is a lot of fun. Slice of Life, which is my favorite, and some serious moments as well, but with especially like family and duty and things like that, but definitely recommend it. And finally, my bazillion literature recommendations that I have. 
First up is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Radiant as To the Lighthouse is in its beauty, there can never be a mistake about it. Here is a novel to the last degree, severe and uncompromising. I think that beyond being about the very nature of reality, it is itself a vision of reality, which was Eudora Welty. The serene and maternal Mrs. Ramsey, the tragic yet absurd Mr. Ramsey, and their children and assorted guests are on holiday on the Isle of Skye. From this seemingly trivial postponements of a visit to a nearby lighthouse, Wolf constructs a remarkable moving examination of the complex tensions and allegiances of family life and the conflict between men and women. Then I read Tell It to the Bees by Fiona Shaw, a secret love which has a whole town talking and a small boy very worried. Lydia Weeks is distraught at the breakup of her marriage. When her young son Charlie makes friends with the local doctor, Jean Markham, her life is turned upside down. Charlie tells his secrets to no one but the bees, but even he can't keep his mother's friendship to himself. The locals don't like things done differently. As Lydia and the doctor become closer, the rumors start to fly and threaten to shatter Charlie's world. Oh, then this one. Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. France, 1939. In the quiet village of Caravelle, Vianne Mariac says goodbye to her husband, Antoine, as he heads for the front. She doesn't believe that the Nazis will invade France, but invade they do, in droves of marching soldiers, in caravans of trucks and tanks, in planes that fill the skies and drop bombs upon the innocent. When a German captain requisitions Vianne's home, she and her daughter must live with the enemy or lose everything. Without food or money or hope, as danger escalates all around them, she is forced to make one impossible choice after another to keep her family alive. Vianne's sister, Isabel, is a rebellious 18-year-old girl, searching for purpose with all the reckless passion of youth. While thousands of Parisians march into the unknown terrors of war, she meets Gaetan, a Parisian who believes the French can fight the Nazis from within France. And she falls in love, as only the young can, completely. But when he betrays her, eh, Isabel joins the resistance and never looks back, risking her life time and again to save others. I will say about this book that is, this is perhaps one of the best books that I have read, in recent memory at least. Completely engaged, and I was wrecked by the ending, and it impacted me and caused waves of depression, which sometimes happen with certain things, like after... Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Gwen Stacy, even though I was prepared and I knew it would happen, sort of enter this bout of depression um, where I become very sad because I've been very attached to these characters. And if I think about it, I get this wave of sadness. And so that happened to me. But it it was amazing. And I won't say that's like high literature, but I will say it's it's an amazing book. Then there is Seraphine and the Seven Stars by Robert Beatty. Peace and tranquility have finally returned to Biltmore Estate after hard-worn battles against encroaching darkness. But as time passes without signs of danger, Serafina finds herself questioning her own purpose. Who is she if not Biltmore's protector? When deceptively dark and unsettling events begin to take place at Biltmore, is Serafina merely desperate to once again play the role of heroine? Or are her home and loved ones in terrible danger from a stranger and sinister force? I then finished the Rosie trilogy, and this is the Rosie result by Graeme Simsian. Don and Rosie are about to face their most important project. Their son Hudson is having trouble at school. 
His teachers say he isn't fitting in with the other kids, and they'd like Don and Rosie to think about getting an autism assessment. As his parents debate whether a diagnosis might help or hinder, Hudson has his own ideas. Meanwhile, Rosie is battling Judas at work, and Don is in hot water after the genetics lecture outrage. The life contentment graph, recently at its highest point, is curving downwards. For Don Tillman, a geneticist and world's best problem solver, learning to be a good parent as well as a good partner will require the help of friends old and new. It will mean letting Hudson make his way in the world and grappling with awkward truths about his own identity and opening a cocktail bar. And then I'm nearly done with uh, Thrawn Treason by Timothy Zahn. If I were to serve the Empire, you would command my allegiance. Such was the promise Grand Admiral Thrawn made to Emperor Palpatine at their first meeting. Since then, Thrawn has been one of the Empire's most effective instruments, pursuing its enemies to the very edges of the known galaxy. But as keen a weapon as Thrawn has become, the Emperor dreams of something far more destructive. Now, as Thrawn's TIE Defender program is halted in favor of Director Krennic's secret Death Star project, he realizes that the balance of power in the Empire is measured by more than just military acumen or tactical efficiency. Even the greatest intellect can hardly compete with the power to annihilate entire planets. As Thrawn works to secure his place in the Imperial hierarchy, his former protege Eli Vanto returns with a dire warning about Thrawn's homeworld. Thrawn's mastery of strategy must guide him through an impossible choice, duty to the Chiss ascendancy or fealty to the empire he has sworn to serve, even if the right choice means committing treason. And then I read three or four, I guess, graphic novels. This was a huge, apparently I was reading a lot right now. That's true. Actually, I was like knocking these things out in three to four days. Uh, The graphic novels I was hitting in a day when I was at the races with my dad. But anyway, Blackbird, Volume 1 by Sam Humphreys and Jim Bartel. Nina Rodriguez knows there's a hidden magical world run by ruthless cabals hiding in Los Angeles. And when a giant magic beast kidnaps her sister, Nina must confront her past and her demons to get her sister back and reclaim her life. Pearl, Volume 1 by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. Pearl Tanaka is an outsider among outsiders, a Japanese-American with albinism. She was born into a world ruled by American Yakuza. Now she uses her unequaled skills as a tattoo artist to make a living in San Francisco, and all that she owes to the Yakuza is the occasional kickback from her shop. That all changes the day she meets Rick Araki and saves his life. Rick is another tattoo artist who's run afoul of a different Yakuza clan. By interfering with their hit on him, Pearl risks drawing her patron into a deadly gang war. Worse, Pearl has revealed to her Yakuza boss is one of her deepest secrets, that she is a talent for killing. Now to pay off her debt, she must become an assassin for her Yakuza clan. But Pearl Tanaka's secrets run more than skin deep. Grass Kings, Volume 3 by Matt Kint. With their brotherly bond fractured at the worst possible time, the Grass Kings must find a way to mend fences before the feds stomp out their illegal trailer park fiefdom once and for all. The final chapter for the Grass Kings is here, as the illegal trailer park kingdom wards off attacks from the outside and within. Robert has become a maniac, paranoid despot, 
Bruce has been exiled following the reveal of his secret partnership with the neighboring town of Cargill, and Asher has been helpless to pick up the pieces. Yet the three brothers must find a way to put their differences aside and defend the secret land that's been passed down through generations. And finally, Blankets by Craig Thompson. Blankets is the story of a young man coming of age and finding the confidence to express his creative voice. Craig Thompson's poignant graphic memoir plays out against the backdrop of a Midwestern winterscape. Finally, Hewn Linework draws together a portrait of small-town life, a rigorously fundamentalist Christian childhood, and a lonely, emotionally mixed-up adolescence. Under an engulfing blanket of snow, Craig and Raina fall in love at winter church camp, revealing to one another their struggles with faith and their dreams of escape. Over time, though, their personal demons resurface, and their relationship falls apart. It's a universal story, and all Thompson's vibrant brushstrokes and unique page designs make the familiar heartbreaking all over again. And that is it. Good heavens. I must have read a lot. Whew. Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to Oracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and show support to the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Next time, we'll have Shagalicious on as we do the hunt for Oracle. But until then, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>